Good morning. We are so glad that you have chosen to join us today. And we are going to be celebrating communion together in just a few minutes. Uh, if you are joining us for the first time uh, during this, the, all of this uh, quarantine and us doing live services together, uh, this is a great time for you to grab some communion supplies, which do not have to be special. Uh, it's an opportunity to go grab some crackers or some kind of bread and some kind of juice or grape juice or whatever you've got. Um, and we will celebrate that together in just a few minutes. Uh, we are looking forward to the time that we can be back together in the same room. Uh, we're still watching everything, and we'll probably uh, make that time s sometime in June, maybe early June. We'll see. And, uh, we'll, but we'll keep you updated. We're going to continue to watch what's happening and want everyone to be safe, but we do miss, miss you, and, and we may even plan to do some things outdoors together before then. So we'll keep you updated. Um, if you would like to follow along with me today, uh, I have all these notes on Uversion. Normally, you can select those simply by opening the Uversion app, and you can go to events, and it will show you all the events in your area. You may not be in our area right now, so if you want to click that link or, or enter that link into your device, then you can pull up all of our song lyrics. We're doing this every week. And you can also uh, pull up my message notes. Now, today, I want you to know that we are going to be doing a little different format uh, in that I'm going to be talking with you for the next 30 minutes or so. And I want to share with you today's Beatitude. Um, and then we're going to close out our service after one more song. Then, if you would like to stay on the stream, we are going to continue to respond to your comments, your questions, or anything you would like to ask. And we'll continue that as long as people want to do that. So a little bit different format today. I hope you'll stay with us. And as Scott mentioned, that you'll invite some others, maybe host a watch party, um, and that you will continue to join us throughout this time. We're going to be looking at the fourth beatitude. Um, and so as we get started, if you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew chapter five. Um, I have a few things I want to talk to you about because what we're talking about today really creates the environment that all the other Beatitudes make sense. Uh, and it's more than you may think that it is. But let's begin with Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Let's just read up to today where we are so far in the Sermon of the Mount. Uh, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, talking about Jesus, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, for us to continue, there's a couple of things we need to kind of get out of the way before we can really approach what today's beatitude means, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And the first is that Jesus was teaching about the kingdom of heaven, or as it's often referred to as the kingdom of God. And we read that in Matthew chapter 4 in this preceding chapter. Now, the reason that's important is because this is right at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, and this is kind of his coming out sermon telling everybody who he is and what this is all about. And we have to recognize that this whole passage of the Beatitudes is not what we sometimes want it to be, which is kind of an ethical, moral checklist of how you should live your life. 
And, and what you're going to find as we walk through this, it's less about doing and it's more about being. And in any way that we would be, it's, it's not so much about all of our efforts, but what is done inside of us. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 4, verse 17, we're kind of introduced into this episode that says, from, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His message was twofold. Number one, return to your faith because... The kingdom of heaven is here. It is here and it is now. This is the environment in which all of the Sermon on the Mount takes place. And Jesus is trying to communicate this. And and verses 18 through 20, it says this, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus, having made this announcement and beginning this preaching, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. This has just happened. So as we understand who Jesus is talking to throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he, he has a very specific audience. And when it says that Jesus gathers with his disciples and begins to teach them, understand they have just started out as disciples. Jesus is just now calling them and he's saying, Hey, come and follow me. I will make you fishers of men. They drop their nets, they leave their family, and they begin to follow Jesus. Then Jesus begins to do some things that are truly incredible, supernatural, and begins to draw this audience that's listening to these Beatitudes. And that's in verse 23 and 24. It says, He went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And then we move into this sermon in which all of those people that we just mentioned, these brand new kind of rough don't have it all together, fishermen. And then all of these people that we've just read about, that those that, that had every disease and affliction, and they were bringing the sick, afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. These are the people that are listening to what Jesus is saying. And that's important because what Jesus is saying is specifically to this group. So as we enter into the Sermon on the Mount, and he, as these crowds are gathering around him, hoping to be healed, wanting to hear this message, wanting to see Jesus, he begins to teach them all of these uh, beatitudes. And if you'll remember, the word beatitude comes from the Latin, uh, that lit, the Latin word for blessed. That's where we get beatitude. One of our interpretations is often these are attitudes that we are supposed to be, which is true but is often understood or interpreted in a sense of these are attitudes or actions or characteristics you should do. And I hope by the end of our time together, you will recognize that is not at all what Jesus was trying to communicate. He was not trying to give a list of things to do. He was talking about what he was bringing to them. This incredible discussion of the kingdom of heaven. 
understanding also that in this context, a lot of these folks are coming out of a, a, an environment of oppression. They're coming in a, in a place where Rome has taken over Israel. They don't have any power. They don't have any control. Most of these people have no social influence. They, they don't have anybody that's interested in knowing them. They aren't seen as necessary in anyone else's life. They are just people with problems on the side. And, but this is who Jesus is interested in. And we read things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Likely many of his listeners during this sermon were poor monetarily. But he says, not only are, are you blessed for being poor, but he's talking about being blessed because you're poor in spirit. Whereas in the Roman occupation, the primary message would have been not just that, but blessed are the strong. Blessed are the wealthy, not the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have nothing going wrong in their life. Life is perfect. Life is good. Not blessed are those who mourn, like Jesus said. Blessed are those that are confident. Blessed are those who don't let anything get in their way. Blessed are those who don't fail. That's the message of Rome. And yet Jesus would say, Blessed are the meek. Because he's talking to people who are not viewed as strong or confident or having everything together or that their life is perfect, but instead their life is filled with challenges. And they, for every message that they hear, for everyone around them is this, you have no value. But what Jesus does is he walks into this environment, he walks in and cares for these people, and he said, listen, you may not be blessed in the world in which you live, but I see you, and God blesses you because you see the world in a better way than everyone else. And so the kingdom of heaven is for you. Now let's unpack that a little bit based on what he's talking about, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And, and remember that being blessed is not just the sense of everything's good and happy and, and like we get lots of stuff and we have no problems. Blessed is the idea of being just insanely happy, but also being set apart, sanctified, set apart as holy, like God is holy. And we've seen that blessing, the kind that Jesus is talking about, is is linked inseparably from an intimate relationship with God, more mirroring, if you've been with us through our series on Genesis, more mirroring the image of God in which is created within us and that we still reflect to some degree. But that's what blessing is, this, this incredible happiness that comes, even in spite of the fact that we, we shouldn't be happy based on what the world says around us. And in, in the, these listeners' eyes, what Rome would have said about them, you are blessed by God, you are set apart, and you are being given a gift that they are not being given, at least not yet. So as we enter into this, Jesus is saying that unbelievable happiness is inseparable from being intimately connected to God, 
But when we understand today's beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There, there are a couple of things that we, we need to kind of understand. Well, what's he talking about here? And one is, is something that, that you may or may not be familiar with. And, but what, what does it really mean to be hungry or thirsty? To understand this hunger and thirst for righteousness, we have to kind of understand, well, what does it mean to be hungry or thirsty? And, 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 and if you've ever grown up in a situation where you were hungry, we all get hungry from time to time. What's interesting about hunger and thirst is that most of the time we're not in control of that. Like, I don't just sit here and decide, I'm going to be hungry. I just all of a sudden realize that I am hungry. Just like being thirsty. I don't sit here and think, you know what, I think I'm going to be thirsty now. Instead, I just all of a sudden realize, hey, I am thirsty. There's this kind of yearning for something that I don't have because if I wasn't hungry, that means I've probably eaten something already. And if I wasn't thirsty, I have probably you know, drunk something already. But when you're hungry and you're thirsty, it's something that you you don't already have, there's this sense of yearning for something that we don't have in our possession yet. You're, you may be hungry as you're eating a meal, but if you have the meal in front of you, you're probably not experiencing hunger. Just like if you had a drink in front of you in your hands, you're probably not experiencing thirst. There's an idea here that there is a desire for something that is out of your control that you don't have right now. And a few weeks ago, I jokingly talked about my very difficult childhood um, and that my parents just wouldn't buy me everything I wanted. I had lots of, of hunger for stuff, you know. And for me, we, we didn't have all, all the things. We had a lot of stuff you could buy, but not like you, we have now. But the co- little coin-operated machines, I just I was fascinated with. You put a quarter in or 50 cents in or whatever, and you would get a, a you know, rubber ball out or... But one that I mentioned that I just thought was great were the the parachute men. You remember those little parachute guys? And they, you know, they would, little plastic men with strings to this kind of plastic parachute that would eventually tear. Usually you would get like one throw, you'd throw it up in the air, and maybe it would untangle in just the right way and slowly fall to earth. And I just thought that was the greatest thing ever. But my parents wouldn't just buy me whatever. And I remember thinking, when I'm an adult, I am not going to want for anything. I, if I want it, I'm going to go buy it. And so my mom and my dad were listening. They're probably starting to text me right now because when I start talking about them, they start texting me because they, they like to watch as well. But my mom actually went out and bought a bunch of these. This is like the current day parachute man, which is really pretty amazing compared to what we had when I was a kid, because you could play with this thing for hours, throw it up and it'd come down and it opens every time. Like, that was not the experience of the little parachute guys when I was growing up. But that hunger can be something more than just for food or for, for drink. It can be a yearning for anything that you just have to have, which probably right now, if I were to ask you to turn to the person sitting next to you right now and just say, hey, I tell them what you most want right now when you're stuck at home, but you want to be out doing stuff. What is that hunger that's kind of grown within you that you can't wait to go do? For some, it may be going out to eat, and, and maybe some of you have already started going out where you can actually sit in the restaurant and eat. Maybe for some of us, like Scott got his haircut, I need a haircut. This is the longest mine's been.
time. Maybe you hunger to get your hair cut. Maybe you just hunger to be with your friends. Maybe you, you know, that, that yearning that you, you didn't dream up yourself. You just all of a sudden find yourself missing it. That's the kind of hunger and thirst that Jesus is talking about. And he, he goes on, and Scripture teaches us a lot, especially in the Old Testament, about hunger for us. And the reality is, is oftentimes what we're most hungry for, we don't fill it with the things we should fill it with. Like, like if I'm really hungry, rather than getting a nutritious meal, you know, we want to go grab a donut or, or, or some kind of you know, snack that it probably has no real food in it whatsoever, and we eat that stuff, and maybe it fills us for a moment, but it doesn't really meet that need. We, we tell our kids, if you're really thirsty, if we're out working, you don't want to drink a lot of Cokes or a lot of coffee or something like that because it actually depletes your body from fluid. It doesn't actually fill you back up with fluid. And oftentimes what Scripture tells us is that's how we try to fill our hunger and our thirst or with things that cannot satisfy us. And that's why Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. If we read back through uh, some of the Old Testament, Isaiah 55, 2 says this, Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? That's like the donuts and the, the food that's not really food and the things that don't really nourish you. Why spend your money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me and you will eat what is good. You will enjoy the finest food. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen and you will find life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. I will give you all the unfailing love I promised to David. So don't don't spend your time and your money trying to fill these hungers that are within you on stuff that won't satisfy you. And clearly they're trying to do a metaphor between food and what we need spiritually. We hunger for lots of things. Jeremiah 2, 12, and 13 talks about us trying to fill things uh, with fill ourselves with things that don't actually fill us. It says the heavens, this is the New Living Translation, the heavens are shocked at such a thing and shrink back in horror and dismay. What are they shocked and what are they shrinking back in dismay? For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me the fountain of living water. If you'll remember, Jesus talks about this living water is in that water that you will never thirst again after you receive it. And they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. In other words, they've created for themselves, rather than being filled with the living water that fills them and makes them satisfied, they kind of create their own wells that don't even hold anything And that is where they put their hope in to fill their hunger. So Scripture tells us that we often hunger for things. Are we seeking to fill ourselves with the things that actually take that hunger away? Or do they just leave us hungry? And you'll find within life that this analogy, you, any adult that's listening, you know this is true. Kids, you're going to find out that all the hungers that you think you have, that you think you can fill if you fill them with the wrong things, they're going to leave you unsatisfied. You're going to want more. There's never going to be enough. Jesus always says, 
when you hunger for the right things and you fill yourself with the right things, you will not hunger or thirst again. So that's the idea of hungering and thirsting. So that's, that's part of the beatitude. The, the other part of the beatitude, well, what does it mean to be righteous? And, and Christians, we get this wrong, especially here in America. We get this wrong all the time because we want to make righteousness about being right. I, I know that is a crazy idea that anyone would live their lives wanting to go out and convince people that they're right about everything, right? It's a crazy idea. But in the church, what we often do is, is we relegate the Beatitudes into this idea of morality or behavior, doing the right things. But how do we, how do, we do being poor in spirit? We have no confidence in ourselves. How do we how do we force that if we actually do have confidence in ourselves? How do we make ourselves mourn if we have insulated ourselves from anything that would cause any sadness at all within us? And all we do is fill ourselves with positive thoughts so that we don't mourn anything. We don't build relationships with people. That way we don't worry about relationships breaking. How do we how do we do mourning? You, you're either mourning or you're not mourning. You're either poor in spirit or you're not poor in spirit. Or, or what about being meek? How do we go out and be meek? Like, if we were to say, okay, you want to be a believer, you want to be a Christian, you've got to be poor in spirit. You know what? You've got to mourn and you've got to be meek. And the reality is, is you either you are or you're not meek. That kind of strength under control we joke in our house about humility, which there is a component of meekness that, that humility meets the definition, but there's more to meekness than just that. And we joke about sometimes, hey, I'm more humble than most everyone I know, which is, of course, silly and ironic. You can't be humble and then be bragging about being humble. In fact, we even have a, a, a phrase we use today. We call it humble bragging. <laughs> So we can't just be these things. We can't just create a checklist and say, listen, if you want to be in and if you want to be blessed and you've got to be these things, that is not what Jesus is saying. And we have to remember that people that Jesus are talking to, they don't have any, they are already mourning. They're sick and oppressed and hurting. They're already without any self-confidence because everyone's told them they don't matter. That's who he's talking to. But, so what is this idea of righteousness? Or, or what does it mean to be righteous? And certainly it, there is a definition of righteousness that is about being right and doing right. It's, there's a legal term uh, that associated with righteousness that is attached to the idea of justification. If you understand justification within our faith, that means that we were guilty because of our sin. And because Jesus gave his life to die on the cross, we were justified. In other words, we were on trial for our sins, and the judge, who God is often referred to as the judge, is going to judge all of our sins. Justification is the process of being made right with God, and all of our sins are acquitted. We are The charges are dropped, and so there is a a part of righteousness about being and doing right and that we as believers recognize that is only possible through jesus we i cannot no matter how hard i try i cannot be or do enough right 
I need Jesus to do that. that. That's why we celebrate communion on a regular basis here, why you should be celebrating communion on a regular basis. And I would love for you just to take a moment to consider that this righteousness that draws a blessing was paid for ultimately by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so that when we take communion in just a few minutes, we recognize this is all possible only, only because of Jesus. But there, there is an idea of doing and being right. But if we read through, this is what Jesus says about being and doing right in the same chapter after the Beatitudes. Verses 17 through 19 says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So so there is a, a, a part of doing and being, Jesus is saying. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, or that says it's not important to be or do right, if anyone tries to relax the law and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it's not that you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven, but you will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And, and then he goes on with this, this idea of doing and being righteous that we tend to just automatically go to because a lot of of the listeners were kind of in this social presence of all about what you do and who you are that they're they're getting from Rome and that that just kind of creeps into their own hearts and their own minds. This is what Jesus says. If you're going to define strictly righteousness as doing and being right, then you're going to have to toe a line. And he says this, the next verse in verse 20, he says, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, so what's he saying this? What's he saying here? Remember who he's talking to, the paralytic, the sick, the blind, the lame, those who have nothing. So it, if you're going to pursue righteousness simply in the way that you be or do, then you're going to have to be and do better than the people that are considered the best at being and doing, the scribes and the Pharisees, those who teach the law and are supposed to be most observant to the law, but we know that's not always the case. He's saying if you're going to do that, then you've got to be better than them. And then if you'll read through the rest of Matthew 5 into chapter 6, this idea of doing and being righteous uh, or doing right, he begins to explain in a way that doesn't make as much sense to them, but he's beginning to take their understanding of righteousness and turn it on their ear. So if we go in and we look at Matthew 5, 21 through 26, and all these are in the notes on version. if you want those, you should not kill, thou shalt not murder, you should not kill, but he goes on to say, but you also should not stay angry with someone, but instead should seek peace with them. So the idea that murder is bad, but 
being angry and holding a grudge is just as bad. If we go down to, to verse 27 through 30, this is where he says, you, you know you should not commit adultery, but if you lust after someone, that is the same thing as committing adultery. He begins to kind of remove the blurry lines. Like, you know, I've been faithful physically, but in my mind I have not. It's, God doesn't see him. either one is different. They're both the same. So if you're going to do and you're going to be righteous, you've got to go the whole distance. And, and now we've already seen two ways that are also things we cannot control. I do not decide to get angry. I either get angry or I don't. I don't decide to lust. I either lust or I don't. It's not an action of my will. Maybe to fight those temptations is an action of the will, but the the reality of being angry or lusting, I, that just kind of happens. I don't decide I'm going to do that. Verses 31 and 32 talks about divorce. And he says, if you divorce, you should do it legally and make sure your spouse is able to make a living. But don't divorce for frivolous reasons. So even though you can legally get divorced, don't do it for frivolous Reasons. If we go down to verse 33 through 37, we should keep our oath, but you should live your life in such a way that no one needs an oath from you. They just know you're going to do what you say you're going to do. See how he expands the idea of the doing into the being? Verses 38 through 42, not only should you not take revenge, on someone that has wronged you, but you should go above and beyond when they take advantage of you. And the idea is if someone, and this is, this is the, the parable, or not the parable, but the metaphor Jesus has used, if someone asks you to go a mile with them, go two miles. And what Jesus is saying, and these are the types of people that would have been asked to do this. So if you were a Roman soldier and you were marching, you could grab anyone off the street and say, here, carry my pack, but you only had to go a mile. So by law, you had to carry their pack for a mile. And what Jesus said was, listen, if someone tells you to carry their pack for a mile, which he's thinking a Roman soldier, if a Roman soldier tells you to carry your pack for a mile, carry it a mile. Don't argue, don't, don't begrudge it, don't you know, sigh under your breath and, and curse them under your breath. Not only carry it that mile, do twice what you're required to do, carry it two miles. So, so he says, listen, don't, don't, don't want to take revenge on people, forgive them, but go so far as to this, when people are taking advantage of you, give them more than they're trying to take from you. Now, I will tell you, I do not like being taken advantage of. And when that feeling wells up within me, I'm being taken advantage of, it often leads to anger, and I will tell you, I've never worked myself up to be to feel like I'm being taken advantage of or to be angry. Sometimes it just happens. So he's talking about those things we don't have control of. Verses 43 through 48 says we should love our neighbor, which is those people that we care about and are near us and we have relationships with. Yeah, we want to do that. But not only should we love them, we should love our enemies too. And remember, all of this is Jesus saying, you know what? 
if you're going to be and do right, you've got to do and be better than the scribes and Pharisees. And this is where he's unpacking what that looks like. If we jump ahead to Matthew chapter 6, it begins to talk about our giving and how we practice our righteousness. And he says, when you practice righteousness, don't do it so that other people will see you, like the the Pharisees. Don't, Don't mimic them so that you get that reward and a pat on the back because look at what you've done. He's saying, do it quietly where only God sees, and then you'll be rewarded because righteousness is about doing, and it's not about finding a place of strength or confidence or standing in a community based on your actions. Because Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven comes to the people that are being and doing in this way, which is completely contrary to the way the rest of the world works. And I will tell you, we mimic regularly the Roman mindset. Jesus is trying to turn that ear, turn it upside down. Don't follow that mindset. So righteousness is we're hungering and thirsting. We're yearning for that thing. We don't have control of it. We don't have the thing that we're hungering or thirsting for. For righteousness, which is a part of his being and doing right, which Jesus then says, but if that's your whole definition, then you've got to do it perfectly, which is impossible and why jesus did come and gave his life for us he took the penalty for us because we couldn't do and be perfectly but we begin to see that righteousness is more about being than it is about doing and that idea in and of itself may make some of you very uncomfortable because you're all about the doing when we start talking about being that way that we've been transformed within us, it's actually all about our being, not about our doing. Now, in our culture, we're totally wrapped up in this. We're totally wrapped up in the idea of doing. We, in fact, when, when you come meet somebody on the street and you're meeting them for the first time, what are one of the first questions you ask other than, hey, how are you today, is, so what do you do? We ask that question because we don't always know what else to ask, and we're trying to kind of get a frame for who they are and an understanding of of who they are. But in that, we are communicating, I'm going to determine who you are by what you do. I'm going to determine your value. I'm going to determine how how much money you earn, which how can decide what your social class is and kind of how successful you are, how much influence you have, how much power you have based on what you do and we've taken this to the degree that we've convinced our kids today that they're defined by what they do not who they are so you got to go to college and got to get a good job and you got to make the right amount of money and you got to do this and that and the other And, and so we have so wrapped up doing with being that's why so many of our young people have little hope Because they recognize they are likely not to have the strength and the power and the social influence that a culture is telling them they should have to have value. So they want to find a job that they're doing gives them a positive identity in the world that also makes lots of money. Because we so merge these ideas of being and doing, but being and doing are not the same thing. We do, but who we 
are is deeper. It's our motives. It's what changes us and moves us. Righteousness is more about being than it is about doing. And often what we end up doing with others is we judge them on doing. And what Jesus is saying is, I do not judge people on their doing. I judge them on their being. It's an important distinction. It changes our whole understanding about this. So if that's true, then one idea of righteousness is that we do and we be right. But if we really want to get to what Jesus is saying, he moves beyond that idea of righteousness. The idea of righteousness in the Old Testament that they would have been familiar with was not just about doing, it was about relationships, being right in your relationship with God. Sometimes we'll say that in the church and we don't really know what that means. Being right in your relationship with God does not mean we're doing all the right things that God wants us to do necessarily. May be a part that we grow into, but it's the idea of doing right by somebody. So, you know, we, we might say a friend does right by another friend, or a husband does right by his wife, or a wife does right by her husband. We do right by God, which is take on his definition of what is right, and we make sure that that relationship is healthy and whole. But it's not just that that we are in a right relationship with God or that we are doing right by God, and we do that. That's part of our understanding of, of God does right by us. He keeps his promises. He said, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come and, and get you, and I'm going to bring you to this place. That is God doing right by us is why we take communion as we recognize God fulfills his promises. He does right by us. He does, as a parent does right by a child, God is pushing and moving us and guiding us in a way that leads us to health, not to something else. God does right by us. We do right by God, and that is important. I want to just take a minute to pause here. I'd like for you to take your communion supplies, and I want you to to recognize as we take this bread and this juice, I want you to recognize that God does right by you. When God leads you, excuse me, he does right by you. When he guides you, he does right by you. When he allows bad things to happen in your life, he is doing right by you. And when we take communion, we recognize that he did the ultimate thing for us and that he died on the cross for us. He did right by us. <coughs> Excuse me. So as we, as we look at, at the elements, and I have some here, I want you to take the bread, and I, I want us just to remember back to Easter just three weeks ago when we talked about God is making us into something new. This kingdom of heaven is coming. It's here in the person of Jesus. He's offering it to us, but it comes with the cost, and that was the cost that Jesus had to be tortured and died on the cross. So as you as you take your bread or your cracker or, or whatever you have, I love the bread that you have to tear because it reminds you that it's forceful. There's a tearing, a ripping. 
Jesus went through that because he was doing right by us. This puts a little bit of in perspective. I believe as Paul said, uh, we, we might die for a good person, but to die for a sinful person, who would do that? That's what Jesus did because he was doing right by us. As you take that bread, let's take and eat. And let's remember that Jesus did right by us. And he gave his body for us. After he gave them the bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body that is broken for you, he then took the cup and he said now this this is my blood which is poured out for you again i'm doing right by you i'm I'm here for you i love you i want you to experience the kingdom of heaven which is not going to happen because of the law unless i die for you he said take and drink this is my blood that is shed for you and see communion is that time that we recognize that he did do right by us. And if we're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness, then that means that there's a yearning that we are out of control of for something we don't yet have. And we are yearning for that being and doing right. We are yearning for that being right with God, which is completely different than being right in the church's expectations. <laughs> like, you got to come to church. Well, you don't right now because you might get sick, but, you know, once this is all over, you need to come back. Or you need to give, or you need to read your Bible, or you need to pray so many minutes of a day. That Can you see how that is completely different? Maybe a part of, but it is not what Jesus is saying here. When we yearn that hunger, we yearn to be right with God. And to do right by God. (laughs) Can you see the difference here? So it's not that the attending church is bad. It's not that the reading your Bible is bad. Or the praying is bad. Or the giving is bad. But those things being done to prove that you're righteous. Is not what Jesus is saying. The fact that we are doing right by God. Causes us to do those things. But those things in and of themselves have no power to make us righteous. See, he's, he's flipping the understanding of what it means to be, you know, religious versus knowing him. But the third idea of being righteous is that not just are we right in our relationship with God, but in the Old Testament understanding, Hebrew, Hebraic understanding, Jewish understanding of righteousness, being right or righteous means that we have right relationships with people. Because remember, community is crucial, always has been. God said when Adam and Eve, he placed them in the garden, be fruitful and multiply. When he talks about the church, he says the church is one body working together with Christ as its head. Community is so important. He said before he would be crucified, he said, I give you a new law, and that is to love others as you Love yourself. This communal aspect, relationship with others, is highly important to God, and it's highly important to Jesus. And the idea of righteousness is that we do right by other people 
as well, which now I'm not going to go into all the ways of what that could look like. But for today, I just want you to understand that righteousness means that relationally we are doing right by people. And I'll just say this, to do right by people are to do the things that God has told us to do with people, which is to lead them to a place of reconciliation with God, which is also righteousness, being right with God, and lead them to grow in their faith. So being right in relationships with other people, doing right by others, begins to put things into perspective because the Roman mindset, blessed are the confident, blessed are the strong, blessed are the powerful. That's the the Roman idea. Jesus says, no, no, blessed are the poor in spirit in which you are not lording yourself over others. Blessed are the meek, not those who are strong and therefore can force others to act and do what you want them to do. Blessed are those who mourn because they recognize something's missing, something's lost, and something should be regained. Changes that understanding. And so if we kind of wrap all this together into, so what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? You will be satisfied. I would say this. Blessed are those who yearn for things that are not right to be made right. For injustices to be made just. For brokenness to be healed. For those who are lording and oppressing others, for them to no longer lord or oppress others. And let those who are being oppressed escape that oppression. Jesus said it this way, which was a prophecy we've already talked about a couple of times from Isaiah. They said, I have come for the oppressed, for the captive, for the slave, for the blind. I've come for the people that no one wants. And these are the people that are listening to this sermon. And he says, blessed are you because there's a yearning that things are not right in the world. Blessed are you because you look at the broken relationships and it bothers you. Blessed are you because you recognize that we need to be reconciled with God and lead others to be reconciled with God. Blessed are you because when you see injustice, you know it's not supposed to be that way and you can't help but see it. You're not in charge. You don't force yourself to mourn over it. You just do. You just, there is that being component. I just mourn over broken relationships. Interestingly, he's going to also begin to shift these to, to talk about this same idea when he says, blessed are the those who give mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are trying to restore the brokenness that's in this world, which that primary brokenness is a relationship first with God and then with each other. So blessed, set apart, insanely happy, Those people who yearn, not because they force them to, just because within their being they yearn to do and be right with God and with other people. To do and be right in the ways that God has called us to do and be right. They yearn for that. And he says they will be satisfied. Those who yearn for right relationships between people And people with God are blessed by God. I would leave you with this and ask you simply, what do you yearn for? Now, I want to pray with you and our 
Our worship team is going to come up and lead us into one more song of worship. If you'd like to talk about any of this or you have any questions that you would like to ask um, or you would just like to say, we are going to allow the feed to go past this next song, and Scott and I will join up here to discuss with anyone who would like to as long as you would like to discuss. I hope you'll join us next week when we begin to continue to wrap this whole package together and understand what it means to be blessed in the way Jesus came. Father, God, I thank you that the kind of blessing that you're offering us is not the kind of blessing that the world offers, but it is something deeper, more important. It's more significant. Father, I do pray that we would we would be those kind of people which is only possible by your Holy Spirit changing us, making us new again. Father, I pray that you would show us what is it that we truly yearn for. And I pray that you would change our hearts to yearn for the things that you yearn for. Father, I thank you that you bless those or the outcasts of the world. You bless those who have nothing to offer. And I thank you that you came and you died for us so that while we have no hope of being righteous in and of ourselves, you have shared your righteousness with us and you continue to change us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.